it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, March 30th, 2010. You're listening to uh, Memorex today. It's not a best of show. I'm going to do Friday Light well on Tuesday. I have a small emergency I need to tend to. Hopefully things won't blow up, at least at the studio. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. God's Word is true, and it's binding on all people. You don't like it? Tough. God's, God's in charge. You ain't. That's just how it goes. So we work on that second part about reminding people who's God uh, and um, that their ideas aren't if they contradict. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. Uh, today, if I sound a little distracted, it is. I'm, I, I am a little distracted, more than a little distracted. And, and unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to do a regular program today. I have an issue that I must tend to. And uh, as a result of it, we're going to do Friday Light today. I'm not sure how that's going to play out then for Friday. Friday is Good Friday, by the way, and uh, uh, that's not a normal uh, day for me to do an entire program. So this whole week just um, um, jumbled kind of, uh, yeah. Anyway, so for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, uh, we've got part two of Kim Riddlebarger's uh, two-part speech uh, talking about the our blessed hope, the glorious returning of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to be listening to that today. And then on the next Friday Light Edition, whatever day we do it, uh, we're going to be listening to Dr. Riddlebarger give, us, give a fine lecture on the uh, doctrine of the rapture and uh, why it biblically uh, falls woefully short. So without any further ado, because I've got things I have to, well, you know. Anyway, uh <laughs> Here's Dr. Riddlebarger and uh, and uh, our blessed hope, the glorious returning of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are resuming our series on Amillennialism 101, and tonight is part two of our discussion of the blessed hope. Now, I spent our time last week pointing out that the heart of New Testament eschatology is the return of Christ. Uh, nowhere in the New Testament do we find the expectation of some sort of golden age in which things are going to get much, much, much better and the Lord returns, as B.B. Warfield used to say, to a saved earth. What we find throughout the New Testament is kind of an oscillation or a a cyclical pattern of history in which there are times of great gospel progress and then there are times in which the church is under great persecution. We find that in some regions there will be uh, a wonderful work of God going on, while in other regions there will be great persecution, just like we see in our own day and age today, and that that seems to go on until the Lord returns. That's the basic New Testament expectation. So the Bible presents us with this blessed hope, as Paul speaks, that Christ is going to come at the end of the age, and when he does, he will come to raise the dead and judge the world and renew uh, the cosmos. So those are the three things that occur when Christ comes back. 
Now, last time we covered the resurrection in some detail, that when our Lord returns, this is the bodily resurrection of both the just or the righteous and the unrighteous. So one of the things that happens when Christ returns is that the dead will be raised. We looked at Daniel chapter 12 and Isaiah chapter 25. In the New Testament, we looked at two passages from Paul's Thessalonian letters that speak of the Lord's return. Those who are still alive will be caught up to be with the Lord. The dead in Christ shall be raised as well. We saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, a very important passage, and I think I probably had to just read it again because this is such an important passage in dealing with the second coming because here we are told the Lord returns to uh, judge believer and unbeliever alike. And, of course, that presents a real problem for folks who believe in a preacher of rapture, who believe that Christ is going to come and take believers off and then seven years later uh, return bodily to deal with uh, everyone else. And so we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So we're told that believers are relieved from their affliction when Christ is revealed from heaven with his angels in flaming fire. Remember, fire is a judgment motif. I say this jokingly, but... I think there's a great deal of biblical truth to this. Fire is rather hot. You don't want to be near the fire when it comes. Fire is a judgment motif. Uh, with his mighty angels inflicting vengeance, fire on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. So at that point, believers are rewarded and unbelievers are punished when Christ comes back. And you can see, as we discussed last time, there's kind of an interrelationship between the resurrection and the judgment because these two things occur at the same time with the same people. Believers are raised to enter glory. Unbelievers are raised to receive their just recompense. And the same thing is taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 54. Then we looked at the judgment again, the passage I just read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the seeds. When the Lord returns, the angels who are the harvesters go forth and separate the wheat from the tares. That occurs when Christ comes back. Then we looked at Matthew chapter 25, a very important passage. Uh, this is still part of the Olivet Discourse. Our Lord is uh, telling his disciples what to do when he leaves. And in Matthew chapter 25, he speaks of the sheep and the goats. The nations are before him on that great day of judgment. The Lord divides the sheep and the goats based on what? Whether they responded to Christ in faith or whether they didn't. And so uh, our friend George Ladd, who we'll hear from momentarily, made the point that uh, that passage appears to teach the all-millennial position, so we're going to have to say that this is just a parabolic reference to judgment, but doesn't really tell us anything significant about when Christ comes back. And I made the point last time that I think that's a very weak argument coming from somebody who is as astute a scholar as George Ladd is in eschatology. And I think 
That's the one text that started to push me to really consider that the resurrection and the judgment occurred at the same time. And then we looked at Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, which is a, a very explicit passage. And I'll read that again. We spent a lot of time in eschatology talking about the first ten verses of Revelation chapter 20, but often don't read the last part of that chapter. In verses 11 to 15, John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Very frightening and vivid image of judgment. And that judgment, of course, occurs when Christ comes back. So I think we've established pretty clearly from very clear texts, mind you, these are not obscure passages that require a lot of hoops to jump through to get them to say what we want them to say. These are relatively clear passages. And those passages tell us that the resurrection and the judgment occur at the same time. Now, if that's true, then this is a huge problem for our premillennial friends because... When Christ comes back, if that's the resurrection, people are either raised or left in the grave. The just are raised and the unrighteous are raised at the same time. So our premillennial friends have to answer this question. Who makes it through the judgment in a natural body to go on into the millennial age? They have to find some category for people to go on into the future in natural bodies. And they'll say something like, well, those are the people who are living on the earth when the Lord comes back. Well, aren't people living on the earth when the Lord come back caught up to be with the Lord in the air and changed? So there's no way for a premillenarian to get people on the earth in a natural body after Christ comes back. And if there are people on the earth in redeemed bodies after Christ comes back, Remember, at the end of the thousand years, there's an apostasy. There's a revolt against Christ after he's been ruling over the earth for a thousand years. So the resurrection is a real problem for premillenarians because they have to explain the fact that there are people on the earth who apparently aren't raised. How do they get to the second coming? And there's a second fall. So who are those who fall? This just creates all kinds of, I think, intolerable problems. We also then argued for a third element, and this is the cosmic renewal, and this is where we'll pick up tonight, uh, because we're told, I think very clearly from a very clear passage, that the heavens and the earth are renewed when the Lord comes back, and not, as premillenarians tell us, at the end of the millennial age. Now, if you're premillennial, you have a scenario like this in which Christ's first coming, His second coming... The thousand years, the final judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. And the problem with that is, as we've seen, the resurrection, the judgment, and the cosmic renewal all occur when Christ comes back. So there isn't a place for 
a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth and an earth that has not yet been renewed in its entirety, only maybe cleaned up or improved or something in this halfway millennial age. And there's no justification for arguing, as premillenarians have to do, that the judgment comes fully a thousand years after Christ comes back, and it's at that point he establishes a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, this argument, if true, pretty well wipes that out and argues that the expectation is not that Christ is going to come back and set up a halfway renewed earth and uh, with a Jesus sitting on a, on a throne in Jerusalem ruling over the nations, but when he comes back, it is the resurrection. It is the judgment. It is the cosmic renewal. We've proved those first two. Now let's tackle the third and the cosmic renewal. Now, not only is it the clear teaching of Scripture, as we've seen, that the resurrection and the judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous occur at the same time, which eliminates the possibility of a millennial age to dawn after the Lord's return, the Scripture also very clearly teaches that the second advent of Christ is the time of cosmic renewal. Now, what do you mean by cosmic renewal? Well, that's the time when every stain, every hint, and every trace of human sin and its consequences is removed from all creation. And that, too, strikes a blow against all forms of premillennialism, which assign the creation of the new heavens and new earth to that time after the resurrection of the judgment and the wicked at the end of the thousand years. So if you have a thousand years after Christ comes back, you don't have the cosmic renewal until a thousand years after Christ comes back. And we're going to see a passage that teaches just the opposite. Now, in fairness to progressive dispensationalists or uh, some historic premillenarians, the argument that they will use, and I've heard this a couple of times, uh, let me just read this uh, statement from uh, Craig Blasting or Daryl Bach. I'm not sure which one's the author. They're, they're both listed. Um, let me read this statement to you as to how they are going to handle the argument that uh, we've just raised. Quote, the millennium is a goal in history, although not its final form. To include a new heaven and earth does not itself logically entail an exclusion of the millennium. So they're saying, look, progressive revelation would even point in the direction of Christ coming back, establishing a millennial age, followed by a new heaven and a new earth. And they're basically saying, they're using the argument that I've used earlier for prophetic perspective. When in the Old Testament, a prophet looks ahead, he sees what looks to him like one thing. And as you start to look at it later on in Scripture, you realize that what looked to him like one thing is actually two things. Um, and they're saying, look, that's what's going on here. Uh, the Bible tells us that Christ is going to come back, and it looks like all the things, those things happen when he returns. But progressive revelation and prophetic perspective show us that there is a millennium, and then the cosmic renewal. Well, A, the clear texts in the New Testament tell us that this event, the Lord's second coming, is the time when all three of these things happen. Very clear passages tell us that, but we've already identified the problems with delaying this. Uh, does Christ come back and partially renew the earth and then establish a new heavens and a new earth? Is our hope that the Lord is going to come back and basically return the earth to the form in which it was during the days of the Garden of Eden? Do we, you know, we, we hear this in Christian lore all the time. Do you want to go back to Eden? 
The hope is not to go back to Eden. The hope is to go to the New Jerusalem, which, again, Eden is its typological forebear. Eden was God's garden on earth, but the whole purpose of redemptive history is that garden, that temple of God, has been completed and is now the earth. So we don't want to go back to Eden. We're not looking for kind of a halfway. Uh, It isn't the final goal of things to have a pet tiger. One of the things that kind of makes its way through evangelical lore is the idea in the millennial age when lions lie down with lambs. So basically I can play with snakes and not get hurt, you know, all that. And there's that hokey picture that makes its way around the Internet of of the lion in the millennial age regally sitting there with children playing on it and that kind of thing. Well, I don't think the goal of redemptive history is that lions become herbivores. I just don't think that's exactly the whole point here. The point is when Christ comes back, there's a new heaven and a new earth. Now, it is an open question whether your dog will be in heaven, but it's an absolute certainty that your cat will not be. So, just cats are not in the new heavens and the new earth. That's very, very, very clear. And for anybody who's wondering why I mean to cats, this is a running joke that Ken Samples and I have had together for years. So, lest any cat lovers get offended, and this is an in-house joke, and enjoy it. Okay. Now, you've been saying, clear text, clear text, clear text. Where's the clear text? Well, turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3, and we'll talk about a very clear text. And let's read this, and then you tell me when you think this occurs and whether or not this is a clear passage. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. Let's just read the whole chapter for context. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. It should you remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your, through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, we have established in earlier lectures on the general eschatology of the New Testament that the last days began when? At Pentecost and with the coming of Christ. We know this from Acts chapter 2. We know this from Hebrews chapter 1. So, in the last days, which is the last period of history, the period after Christ's first coming until his second. That's the last days. In the last days, scoffers will come, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. We'll look at some of these uh, scoffers like Albert Schweitzer here momentarily. Um, Where is the promise of his coming? Verse 5, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Here's that judgment motif again. Fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So in that passage, we're told that this occurs on the day of the destruction of the ungodly, when God's fire, is, his wrath is released 
against the entire earth. This is the destruction of the ungodly. This event occurs when Christ comes back. We've established that. So I think that's pretty clear in terms of the time reference here. Peter goes on to say, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Um, basically, uh, we're told here that, that God is not bound by time, as are we. Uh, much mischief has been done with that passage, but I think all it's telling us is that the Lord is outside of time. Nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So this is not an Arminian proof text that uh, God wants everybody to be saved and he's sitting up in heaven pining away until people let uh, Jesus have their way with him. Rather, this passage is telling us that all of those whom God desires to be saved will and will come to repentance. Verse 10, a theme we've heard in Paul. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The implication of a thief is you're not ready for him when he comes. He'll surprise you. Come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Now, when the heavens pass away with a roar, we have a parallel passage to several in the book of Revelation that teaches when the Lord returns, the skies will roll up like a scroll. Now, I don't know what the biblical writers are getting at here when they describe the heavens passing away as with a roar. Um, this is one of those passages that you know, Gerhardus Voss is absolutely right about. We're not going to know what this means until it happens. But it's cosmic. The heavens. Not just a local place, but something on a cosmic level. Um, every time I read this passage, I go back to uh, the days of the Cambridge Declaration um, in Harvard and the Lutheran theologians had invited us over for uh, adult beverages after the conference all day. And so uh, Dr. Godfrey and uh, Mike Horton and Ken Jones, uh, Ben Sass, several of us went over. We finally found the Lutherans and we walk in. There are you know, 15, 20 Lutheran clergymen in the room. And Mike walks in and so David Scare, famous Lutheran theologian, says, So Horton! Is Christ going to drop down into heaven on a rope? And this gets to our Christological debate about the extra Calvinisticum and so on. But it was a great point. Um, if Christ ascended into heaven bodily when he returns as he descended, you know, is his coming in a universal or local? If he's got a true human nature, then his coming has to be local in some sense. So Dr. Scare was you know, kind of throwing that back at us and saying, so it's going to come by helicopter? What is this? So, I don't know what's going to happen when Christ comes back, but it's cosmic. And the language is that the elements themselves are going to be changed. They'll pass away with a roar. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So there's some sort of cosmic renewal when Christ comes back to the extent that the elements themselves are changed. And I think the answer we're going to find is Revelation chapter 21 and 22, but that's for another time, another discussion. 
Now, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, cosmic renewal entails a new heaven and a new earth. So, the goal here is not just Eden regained, but final consummation, when all things are made new. And again, remember the the grand drama of redemption. Eden is the place where God and man or actually, let's put it this way. This is the place where Adam was to build God's temple garden on earth, where Adam and Eve had fellowship with God on earth. And Adam served as God's vice regent over all creation. But we're not looking for that again. We're looking for a consummation, a covenant of confirmment, wherein Adam and Eve and all of Adam's believing children are in glorified bodies in resurrection bodies, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, I'm afraid premillennialism breaks down in that the millennial kingdom is something very much like an Eden restored. And it's a halfway step on the way to consummation. But Peter is pointing us not to a halfway step, but to consummation. I hope everybody can see this. This is really clear in this passage. And when will this happen? On the day of the Lord. And we've already established elsewhere in our time referential passages that the day of the Lord is the second coming, the blessed hope. So I think this passage is often overlooked in this discussion, but it is a, it is a clear, clear problem passage for anybody who's premillennial. And again, uh, the consummation is what is portrayed here, not some kind of a halfway uh, step on the way to consummation. Now, there are a couple of other things we ought to say at this point. Although God's delay in judging the world is an act of grace, even God's graciousness in delaying the day of consummation or God's final wrath becomes, sadly, the occasion for scoffers to mock God's redemptive purposes. God is gracious. Judgment day is put off. It's delayed. And what do unbelievers do? Thank you, Lord, for being gracious No, they laugh. Where is the promise of this coming? They scoff. They mock. And to encourage believers in the midst of the middle of this rank unbelief, Peter paints a glorious vision of the final eschatological judgment. And when we say eschatological judgment, we mean judgment day, basically. That day yet to come on the earth. And Christians aren't to take the delay in the parousia or the second coming to mean that Christ is indifferent to his people or powerless to help them, a delay is because of God's timing. And God's timing isn't our timing. That day has been appointed and it will come. But I don't know when that day will be. You don't know when that day will be. But I'm not to take the fact that judgment is not yet to mean judgment will never happen. What God asks of me is to believe that as surely as he brought judgment during the days of Noah, as he poured out his wrath and anger on his son on the cross, so as surely as those things have happened, I'm to believe that a day is coming when Christ will return. And for believers, that's a glorious day. 
It's the day of resurrection. It's the day when the Savior Himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. But for unbelievers, it is the day that they would rather have the rocks fall on them than behold the glory of Christ. So, for the Christian, the second coming is pure gospel. For the non-Christian, the second coming is pure law. And um, again, that's one of those, I think, sorry legacies that rapture theology at least left in, in my circles here in Southern California was the rapture became the kind of be careful little hands what you do because if you have unconfessed sin and the Lord comes back, you're not going to go in the rapture. And that turned the blessed hope into the threat. And when it's a message that every biblical writing uses to comfort persecuted Christians. Look up. The day of redemption is, is drawing nigh. And again... Okay, going to pause there. Great stuff. Uh, again, from Dr. Riddlebarger. Um, We've got to pay some bills. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, piratechristian. We will be right back. ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing the Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, the Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of the Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. Spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. 
And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Highly distracted Chris Roseboro today. Warning, the end of the world is coming. Jesus Christ will return in glory. But it's great news for us Christians. <laughs> the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I can't wait. <laughs> really hoping soon. All right, uh, we're going to play the balance of uh, Dr. Riddlebarger's lecture, and then at the end I'll remind you that we're listener-supported. So without any further ado, here's Dr. Riddlebarger, uh, our blessed hope, the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've made this comment earlier in the series, but I want to reiterate again. Next time you're sitting in your your church, if you can still find a hymnal in your church, uh, maybe still one of the overheads from the projector guy, but uh, when you're looking through your church hymnal, uh, look at Luther's hymns on the second coming, because Luther gets it, that for the Christian, the second coming is pure gospel. It's the day of hope, but for non-Christians, it's the day of pure law. It is the day of judgment. So, when Peter assigns the cosmic renewal of the heavens and earth to the day of the Lord, that day of judgment, which comes like a thief, he does this to make the point that the day of judgment is going to be the day of wrath and renewal and that those who sleep, those who are not paying attention, are going to be caught completely unaware. This will overwhelm people who are not expecting it. And so, since we are expecting it, what are we to do? We're to party. No. We are to purify ourselves in anticipation of that great day. So that element is here. But it's offered as hope, and in our categories, makes perfect sense in hitting gratitude. We're to live lives of gratitude knowing that Christ has taken away the wrath from us on the cross and is going to come and raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. And on that day, we'll receive all the promised inheritance. It's a, it's a glorious promise. Now, it's interesting to note that at the end of that exhortation, following in the next section, Peter discusses how Paul's teaching is difficult and hard to understand. And though we don't know to what specific thing Peter was referring about Paul, we do know that in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 21, Paul also speaks of cosmic renewal. So I'll read this passage out of Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 21, where Paul in two verses says what Peter has just said. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, according to Paul, 
There's coming a time when the creation will be liberated from its bondage. In other words, the curse will be removed. But not only that, this demonstrates that Christ is going to deliver his people because on that day the sons of God are going to be revealed and he is going to not only reveal the redeemed, he's going to deliver all of creation from its curse. He's going to, to basically save creation. And so the Reformed have this notion that not only does Christ come to save the earth, he comes to redeem the cosmos. So that the final chapter of redemption is one in which even every trace of the curse is removed. Now, we're not Gnostics. We don't believe that matter is, is evil because it's material. But there is some sort of imprint on the creation because of the fall. And all Paul is telling us here that not only do our sinful feet corrupt creation, and that's going to be fixed because of the resurrection and judgment, but whatever remains in creation of the fall is going to be removed so that we have a home of righteousness and new heaven and a new earth. So this is Paul's hope as well as it is Peter's. Now, since cosmic renewal is depicted as the day of judgment for the wicked and as preparation of the home for the righteous, then I think we have that third anchor firmly established that when Christ comes back, it will be to raise the dead, judge the world, and renew all things. I think that case is very clear. It's very strong. It's from very clear passages. And if all of these things fit together, if you're premillennial, you have a huge problem. Now, I tried to dodge the weight of that problem for years and finally just realized you can't do it. Um, I know that some very good New Testament scholars will say, you know, I'd be all millennial, but in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, the first resurrection, that word for resurrection only refers to bodily resurrection, not to spiritual. I understand that, and that's a weighty argument on its face. But you're up against this bigger picture. Yet there are other passages that are very clear that tell us that the resurrection, the judgment, and the cosmic renewal all occur when Christ comes back. And if it comes down to anastasis and second fall, no explanation, then I'm going to find a way to look at that more carefully. And since I believe John wrote the Apocalypse and his Gospel, I think the key there is John chapter 5, when John tells us that those who uh, hear the voice of the Son of God, hear the voice because they've already been made alive, regeneration, translation of the presence of God. So I've heard those arguments. I think that's the best a premillennial can, can do against this. But the weight of this even is so strong in my estimation that it crushes that, what I think is a sincere but futile attempt to escape the weight of this very compelling argument. Now, you know you cannot do eschatology without a chart. You cannot do it. Now, given my very poor graphic skills, I worked on a chart for a long time, but lo and behold, discovered that my friend David Bandrunen had already done a chart for his Doctrine of the Holy Spirit class at Westminster. So I have uh, reproduced for you that chart. Now, unfortunately, all we have is a crummy black and white printer. This is like a second generation copy. The uh, original is on my blog. If you go to the search engine and search Van Drunen chart, you can pull it up. And we have a nice color version for you. They have nice color printers. You can pull it down. You'll get your own first generation copy. It's really cool. 
but I think this is very helpful. You'll notice that at the center, for those of you who are listening and can't see this, uh, you'll go to my blog and, and download it. Um, but before you do, in the center is a circle surrounded by circles around it, kind of gathered around the center circle. And in the center, Van Drunen has Christ's second coming, which is both the parousia and the apocalypsis. And the clear passages here, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, and 10, we've read them, and 2 Peter 3, 4, a passage we have already read. But I do want to go back and read the 1 Corinthians 15 passage. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to read this again because this is a text that... Uh, I wanted to use for the, the title of the book that became a case for all millennialism in this section. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, so Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. At his coming, those who belong with Christ, then comes the end. Not a thousand years later, not after some intervening period of time, then comes the end. And what is the end? When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign. That was the title I had picked. He must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So that's a great passage, and Van Drunen is absolutely right to put that at the heart of this notion. Christ's second coming is the end. We're told that very clearly in that passage. Now, you'll notice that the circle's on the outside, and they're all connected by arrows because uh, we can say that Christ's second coming leads to the resurrection of the just, it leads to the resurrection of the unjust, and so on. So let's look at the top circle, and we'll just go around clockwise. The top circle is cosmic renewal, passages we've just considered from Romans 8 and 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, the telos, the end, or as Van Drunen calls it, the perfection, the completion of all things occurs when Christ comes back. And that leads to the next circle, the resurrection of the unjust, or of the just, rather, and all the passages we just mentioned in our review, including another one like Acts 24, 15, which is a... Very important text as well. Next circle in the line is the resurrection of the unjust. The same passages again. And then the next circle down at the, uh, what is that, the 7 o'clock position probably, uh, comes the final judgment of the unjust. Second Thessalonians passage, Revelation chapter 20 passage. The final judgment of the just. The same text again. And that takes us up to... Uh, the 11 o'clock position, the day of the Lord, the parousia, from Second Peter chapter 3, verse 4. Those circles, those separate events, all occur based on clear passages when Christ comes back. And I think on its face, that is the strongest argument for amillennialism. And I think premillenarians, if you're premillennial and you're listening to this, you know, you've got to wrestle with 
the fact that these three things occur at the same time. And there are you know, ways to try and get out of the weight of this. I tried for five years. But I think Van Drunen's chart and the simplicity of it and the interconnectedness of it makes a very compelling case that all of these things occur when Christ comes back. And if that's true, then we're waiting with eager anticipation for the Lord's return. Now, a couple of things of, I'd like to cover again. And I want to go back and readdress the question we spent two weeks covering earlier in this section, the signs and the imminent return. And I want to do a little more fleshing out of that in light of uh, the doctrine we've just established that resurrection, the judgment, and the cosmic renewal occur at the same time. Now, next week, we're going to address the question of the secret rapture. Now, my dispensational premillennial friends have a fit whenever I speak of it as a secret rapture, and I probably um, should qualify that because they take offense at that, and I want to be sensitive to, to those concerns. Basically, that view is that Christ comes back, only no one sees him. He doesn't. It's a real coming, they argue, but he doesn't touch the earth, and no one sees him. So, on our side, I know dispensations are upset and we speak of it as a secret rapture, but by definition, that's exactly what it is. So, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll concede the point you don't call it that, and I don't say that to dismiss the sincerity of your position, but I say that because you have Christ coming back and no one sees him. That, to me, sounds very, very, very much like the preterist view of Christ returning in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, and I hope that one of the things that jumps out in the discussion of these clear passages that focus on the blessed hope, there's no hint anywhere that any of this is going to be unseen or secret. The resurrection of the dead is a pretty public event. Is it not? The judgment of the nations is a very public event. Is it not? And the elements and the heavens burning up and being reconstituted is a rather public event. Is it not? So, I'm very nervous as we talk about the second coming of attempts to say, well, Christ comes back, but it's only in the glory of the clouds. His coming is accompanied with the glory of the clouds, but it's to do public things and not just in Jerusalem. Nor is his coming to take Gentiles off the earth, not touching the ground, but taking us up into the air so that God can go back and finish his business with Israel. Again, I think when we argue for the resurrection, the judgment, the cosmic renewal occurring at the same time, we've also chipped away at the power of those other arguments that Christ came back in the clause to judge Jerusalem in AD 70, or that the rapture is going to be somehow an event where Christ returns but doesn't touch the ground. Now, I want to, as I mentioned, touch on this yet again because I think this is an important point. How do the signs of the end relate to the second coming? I devoted a, a whole lecture to, a, whole, a part of a whole lecture to that question, all right, what's yet to happen? What are we anticipating? We, we've done that. But I want to look at, come at this from a little bit different angle here, so, so bear with me before we take up our discussion of the rapture next time. 
Now, one of the most difficult aspects of New Testament eschatology is the tension we find between the biblical passages that speak of the sudden nature and the unexpected nature of Christ's return. We've seen them in the passages we've just covered. And those biblical passages that tell us that Christ's return is preceded by specific signs, signs we've identified in an earlier lecture. Now, why this is important? Well, in the interpretation of the Gospels, especially in the earlier first and second quest for the historical Jesus, the earlier quest for the historical Jesus were attempts to get back and to get at not the Jesus of the New Testament, but to get behind the New Testament to the Jesus who really lived in history. And the assumption was that that Jesus isn't the Jesus of the New Testament. That the early Christians put words in Jesus' mouth. They turned this Galilean prophet into a Christ figure, a Redeemer, a Messiah. And um, the reason why I want to tackle this is we have someone like Albert Schweitzer um, who claimed that Jesus' predictions of God's judgment did not come to pass as Jesus himself believed that it would. So the first Christians introduced this idea of a delay in the timing of the parousia. And that supposedly explains why it is that Jesus' prophetic expectations haven't come to pass. <coughs> so critical scholars will say, look, Jesus was a Galilean prophet, and they'll debate as to how Jewish Jesus was in terms of his message. The, the, the consensus of biblical scholarship now is pretty much as we can understand Jesus apart from his Jewish context. I think that's very, very helpful. But Jesus was essentially an apocalyptic prophet. And he believed that the end was near. So he taught all of these things to the disciples, and then he's crucified. And as many of these folks believe, he was raised in some sense that transformed the lives of the disciples, not necessarily bodily. And that it's now 40 A.D., 50 A.D., 60 A.D., and Jesus hasn't come back. He said that he would, and he hasn't. So it's argued by these critical scholars that as the early church is, is beginning to codify what Jesus supposedly said, what's called Q, the sayings of Jesus and so on, that what gets added in there in the 60s and 70s and even on the 80s is this teaching that the parousia is delayed. Now, it's important to mention this because R.C. Sproul, who I think is probably the, the, I have nothing but admiration for R.C. He's done more for the Reformed faith than anyone living in his book, The Last Days According to Jesus, makes the point that the way to answer that conundrum raised by critical scholarship is to say, well, Christ really did come back in judgment on Israel in AD 70. And he'll argue that this delayed parousia argument used by critical scholars is, is solved by arguing that Christ really did come back in 8070. And so there's a kind of a pull in some circles toward a preterist position that resolves that conundrum by saying Jesus predicted he was coming within a generation, and he did. Now, I think the argument we've just set out answers that because the clear passages we've just covered tells us that when Christ comes back, it's to do public things, not secret things. Now, I do think AD 70 is a significant moment in redemptive history, not because Christ came back in judgment on Israel, because it's at that moment 
that Israel is dispersed, the temple's destroyed, and it is the worst moment ever to come upon Jerusalem in the history of the world and the worst moment to ever come upon Jerusalem in the future. Think what happens in AD 70. The temple is destroyed. Now, is that a bad thing? It's tragic from the sense of what the temple was supposed to represent, and Israel didn't see it, but the earthly temple is a type of the heavenly temple. It's an act of God's judgment. We know this because when Christ died on the cross, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom in, say, AD 30, and the temple is, in a sense, Ichabod from that moment on, and it's finally destroyed And now think of what that does to those old covenant people who don't see in the Messiah the new covenant. They're now dispersed into the nations. And we can see how contemporary Judaism is very distant from biblical Judaism. Biblical Judaism centered around a priesthood and a temple and so on, animal sacrifices. Contemporary Judaism centers around the synagogue and basically the teaching of Torah plus the commemoration of several feasts. And it's vastly different from biblical religion. We not only have the destruction of the temple, we have the dispersion of the Jews into all the earth, which is a, a tragic thing for Israel. And this is the fate of the covenant people of the Old Testament. And it is a horrible tragedy. It's a tragedy of biblical proportion. So eighty seventy is significant. And we all need to concede that point, I think. Um, my wife and I were watching a, a series done by the teaching company in the history of Rome, and I unfortunately have never had a chance to go to Rome, but one of the things that struck both of us watching it is the, the close-ups of Titus's arch. And you look at the menorah and the, the gold out of the temple coming into the city of Rome, and what did it pay for? The building of the Colosseum. And who built the Colosseum? Jewish slaves captured in AD 70. So, you know, when you look at it from that perspective, this is just... Horrific! This is the worst moment in Israel's history. So there's a pull toward preterism, and I don't want to dismiss the tragedy of AD 70, because that is a significant thing. That's not the second coming. And I don't think Schweitzer's position is all that compelling anyway, because the tension in the New Testament between the already and the not yet, as we've already seen, is by design. We live in anticipation of the second coming. The church has lived in anticipation of the second coming from the moment Jesus gave his final instructions to the disciples. The delay in the second coming is not a reason to embrace preterism. The New Testament is characterized by this tension between the blessings we already have in Christ and the blessings that are not yet ours in Christ. The reason why the second coming is the blessed hope is it points all of us to that day when not yet is ours. Now, if our position is the first resurrection occurs when we're born again, or when we die and pass in the presence of the Lord in heaven, if that's the first resurrection, as I believe that it is, then we're anticipating the second coming and the general resurrection at the end of the age. So this is the great hope for any who have lost a loved one in Christ. This is the greatest family reunion in the history of the world. Um, The dead in Christ will be raised. It's the blessed hope. 
to know that we will live with the Lord forever. That's where the New Testament points us. So in this life, by design, we live in the tension of seeing that empty tomb in Jerusalem, knowing that one day all the tombs of believers are going to be empty. That's intentional. That's built into the New Testament. And as George Ladd so helpfully puts it, and I like to quote Ladd on this because I have a lot of respect for Ladd as a biblical scholar, and I think he gets this one absolutely right. Uh, Says Ladd, quoting, This tension has for its primary purpose an ethical objective, to exhort watchfulness and readiness for the end. There's nothing to be embarrassed about when Jesus says he's coming soon and then he doesn't come. This has a purpose. Jesus was not interested, says Ladd, in depicting eschatological conditions. Take that prophecy pundits who think that Jesus gave us this information so we could chart out the end by looking at the newspaper and figuring out when the second coming was going to occur. Ladd's absolutely right. That's not why this is given. But Jesus was preparing men for the day of judgment. Jesus himself tells us he's coming because he's preparing us for the not yet. The delay is not a problem. The delay is the ethical teaching. It has a purpose. It's by design, says Lat. And this explains, he goes on to say, why the seemingly contradictory emphasis on the imminence and remoteness of the last day was designed precisely to make it impossible to know the time. But it demanded readiness for a sudden event. So there's no way we could have been with the disciples on the, Olivet, on the Mount of Olives for the Olivet Discourse and heard Jesus say, you don't see the temple across the Kidron Valley there on the other side? It's going to be destroyed. And the disciples went to saying, oh, the end of the age. And Jesus, then in the midst of instructing them about what's going to happen in Jerusalem, telegraphs ahead and speaks of cosmic signs in the heavens. As lightning Flashes across the sky from east to west, so will it be when the Son of Man comes in all his glory. It'd be like in the days of Noah, Jesus himself telegraphs ahead to the end of the age. And then in Matthew chapter 25, he tells the parable of the virgins and says to them explicitly to watch because you don't know how long the master's going to be gone from his house. This is not some sort of an, an argument that, you know, the liberals have us. This is not a weakness. This is by design. This is the ethical teaching of the New Testament. We must always be ready. We must always watch because we don't know when the Lord's going to come back. That's the whole point of this. And when we look at what Christ has already done, his empty tomb points us ahead to the general resurrection. The wrath he bore on the cross points us ahead to the day of judgment, yet without fear. My dear little... Dispensational grandmother used to talk about uh, that when we appear before Christ on the day of judgment, it would be like a movie, and every, every sin we've ever committed will be shown to everyone. And therefore, we had to confess them. I'm so glad that the Reformation doctrine of imputed righteousness is here because on that last day, Christ's death and righteousness cover all of that. And if that movie were ever to be shown, it would be viewed through the lens of Christ's perfect righteousness. So the day of judgment is not something we need fear because they're already not yet. We can look back and see Christ took judgment day for me on Good Friday. So I need not fear judgment day. 
cosmic renewal? Well, that's the day when cancer cells disappear. You know, that's the day when sickness goes away. That's the day when all of the stuff that we have brought on the creation is undone. The curse is forever overturned. So, I think they, I understand the, the, the tension that R.C. and others feel toward AD 70. Again, it's a significant event. But we can't chop the eschatology out of the New Testament. That's there for a reason. Schweitzer got it absolutely wrong. That's by design. That's not Jesus predicting something that didn't come to pass. That's Jesus predicting something that will come to pass when he's good and ready for it to come to pass. So that I am to live my entire life in anticipation of that great and glorious day when the Lord returns. And one of the things my dispensational grandparents taught me was, we may be that generation living that doesn't face death. You go back and read the story of Enoch, you know, uh, Elijah. Um, you wonder about Lazarus, what did Lazarus think when Christ raised him from the dead, and then he dies later on, the second thing, you know, you... So you look at these biblical figures and say, you know, I would hope to be alive and, and never taste the sting of death. I mean, that's, that's our hope. And yet, if we die, we die in Christ, knowing that we will be raised from the dead on the last day, that our death is the cessation of our sin, we're immediately in the presence of the Lord, and that God is going to raise our bodies from the dead. It's the, it is the blessed hope. Glad goes on to say a couple final points. He says, this is where the Gospels leave us. Anticipating an imminent event and yet unable to date its coming. Logically, this may appear contradictory, but it is a tension with an ethical purpose to make date setting impossible and therefore demand constant readiness. So I understand the pull toward preterism. I see the significance of 8070 in terms of its historical significance and the horrific thing that came upon Israel and the Jews. I, I understand that. But I am not going to jettison the eschatological tension in the New Testament by, by pushing everything into the past as partial preterists tend to do and saying it's all fulfilled, all we wait is the second coming. I, I don't see it that way, and I think we've made a pretty good case this evening that that's not what the New Testament reminds us or, or how it points us. Now, to wrap up then, it's really simple. To Christians, the sign of the end and the tribulation the church faces throughout this present age, these aren't signs of God's absence. They're not signs of God's indifference. They're not signs of God's impotence in coming to our aid. Um, these are signs that the guarantee is that Christ is coming to end this present age. All the groaning and all the... This, the uh, despair is proof that the Savior is going to return and put an end to it all. Now, the tumult of the earth is a cry for the redemption of all creation. The groaning of earth beneath us tells us that all isn't right and that God is going to have to intervene to undo the consequences of human sin. Now, notice, too, that both Jesus and Paul describe the future course of history as being like that of birth pains. Birth pains come with greater frequency they become increasingly more intense. Not that I've experienced them myself. I have witnessed them firsthand on two occasions. Um, when the birth finally comes, the convulsions are so acute that it's virtually impossible to tell whether the next contraction 
will be the one that results in the blessed event or if it's another ordeal to be endured with clenched teeth and fists. That's the way this entire interadvental period is going to be. It's because of this tension that Christians are prevented from date setting. And if we were there on the Mount of Olives, we could have predicted the date if the preterist position was right. Could we not have? Oh, he's coming back in AD 70. That's not what happened. We can't set dates. No matter how hard Harold Camping tries, he's going to get it wrong. And I facetiously say the one day I can bet that he won't come back is the day Harold Camping predicts. But it would be just like the Lord to have the Lord return on the day Harold Camping did predict so that none of us would be expecting it. That would, that would make perfect sense. So we as God's people are to see in these signs the guarantee of the end. Now, non-Christians see the same signs entirely differently. For them, this is the proof that the Lord's not going to come at all. Without faith, the delay in the parousia is taken to mean that Jesus is never going to come back, that you guys blew it by trusting in this Galilean peasant who is probably dead. Uh, as some will say, his body was eaten by dogs. I mean, you, you read this stuff in the critical literature, you're just, you're just flabbergasted by, uh, by that kind of argumentation. But turn on A&E, you know, or Discovery Channel, or National Geographic, look at their uh, New Testament Specials. And since Easter's coming, it's about time for them to start running all this junk again. And that's the position of critical scholarship, that Jesus predicted he was coming back and got himself killed for it. So, without faith, this is taken to mean that life is going to go on is never without end, and that human sin and rebellion are just simply going to go unpunished. And yet, as we've just seen in Second Peter chapter 3, Peter taught us that after an interval of some duration... Uh, Christ would return, and it's that delay that prompts the scoffers to say, where is this coming that the Lord promised? And why do the scoffers scoff? Well, whenever we make predictions that the Lord is going to come back at such and such a date, and we argue you know, that Saddam Hussein is the, here it goes, we're right back to Babylon again, this is going to be it, this is going to be it, this is going to be it. That wasn't it. Um, I have in my my uh, library Demetrius, a noted dispensational scholar gave a lecture called Vietnam and Bible Prophecy. Now, this guy's not a kook. This guy's not a prophecy punt. This is a noted theologian. That, to me, is a warning to all of us. If you set dates and make predictions... There are going to be cassette tapes floating around after you're dead and gone that you wish weren't. Um, one of my favorite trinkets is a book that my grandmother left to me describing why Mussolini is the Antichrist and Hitler is the false prophet. makes a very compelling case for this because where was Mussolini? In Rome. The Roman Empire is revived. Pretty compelling. It's just... Wrong. Uh, then there was the Jupiter effect. Remember that? In 1980, all the planets were going to align, cause this great earthquake. Um, the Mayan calendar, 2012. You know, all of this, this just goes on and on and on. And as long as we as Christians give the scoffers ammunition, they're going to scoff. And it's like the boy who cried wolf. No, he's coming back soon. All of a sudden he's pointed. And we really mean it this time. 
and non-Christians dismiss us as kooks because so many predictions have been made and those who make them need to be called out on the carpet when they do. What we can say is Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that's our hope. Not to set dates, but to long for this, the blessed hope. Next time we'll take up a discussion of the rapture. And uh, if any of you have any questions, you can step toward the mic, and uh, I'd be happy to, to entertain them. And it doesn't look like we have any questions, so. which is good. I didn't feel like answering any questions tonight anyway. <laughs> uh, this is, this is a, a, a real simple topic, and uh, I think you'll... Oh, we have a question. We do, we do. Got to go to the mic, though. I went through your explanation of the Olivet Discourse, and that was that was helpful. Um, I, I think what a lot of people find compelling in the sort of leaning toward the preterist answer is the way the the Bible uses the uh, the return or the coming of the Lord, especially in the Old Testament, yes, as judgment. Yes. And so that could be something that happens in intervals or or, or, the, or the birth pangs, as you say. Um, the, the problem, the danger is that when you relate that to what you were saying before, that the Son of Man, the, the return of the Son of Man, like in First Thessalonians 4, uh, with, with the, the, the parousia, or is, is pointed to Daniel's uh, reference, the Son of Man coming, where every, everyone sees him. And that's, that's kind of the tough thing. But it, it's hard to argue against the idea that, that you know, he, he has come. He has come in, in ju- visiting uh, iniquity on, on uh uh, covenant breakers on his people uh, or other other nations. Right. And that's sort of the... Yeah, the language there is that, that a parousia is God coming in judgment on his people. Now, if you make the case, and this is, a, I think you're raising the question because it would probably be worth a good point of clarification. Mm-hmm. If you make the case that there are parousias mm-hmm. of the Lord and his righteousness throughout redemption, we've got a couple of them in the New Testament. The Mount of Transfiguration, Christ's post-resurrection appearances. Uh, you know, there, there are places like that. And if you mean by Christ coming in judgment in Israel in AD 70, well, if the parousia is like the transfiguration, if it's a local event wherein we see God's judgment coming on Israel, I'm okay with that. What we have to be careful is to his second coming, the second advent, is bodily, cosmic, and universal. So I, I struggle, as you, you notice, to say, I do want to take the events of eighty seventy very seriously. It is the culmination of God's judgment on the temple and God's judgment on Jerusalem and God's judgment on Israel. And it is, I think, biblically permissible to say that the Lord visited Israel with judgment. I do not think that's the second advent. And I, 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 part of this is preterists and futurists, I think, need to kind of come to greater clarity on the language here. Because there are a number of partial preterist friends of mine who say, well, you just conceded my whole point. Well, I'll concede that Christ came in judgment in 870 on Israel. I will not concede that's the second advent. And, and when, when you read that chapter with the, the two-age model uh, as a prism, would you say that that uh, 29 through 31, where it says the sun will be dark, the, the typical eschatological signs, the sun darkened, the moon 
light, and then he appears, the sign of, the sign, uh, of the Son of Man, and then the tribes will mourn, of uh, Zechariah, and then this one that his angels will loud call, that that is purely the, the return. That's the yeah, I, t- I take 29 and following to be uh, the return. And I think verse 31 pushes us in that direction. He'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather the elect from the four winds. Well, that's a parallel passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Mm-hmm. And I can see the difficulty of translating uh, Euthus in 29 as immediately. Right. That's pushing that ahead to the future. There's been a lot of ink written on that. Mm-hmm. But I don't see any other way to interpret that. And how do you do that again? How do you, do you say that is... Uh... If, if prophetic perspective holds... You can argue that Jesus, just like an Old Testament prophet, mm-hmm. speaks of an imminent event, the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, and telescopes that ahead to the second coming. Right. And without missing a beat, speak of those two things in almost overlapping each other. Okay. And yet, as you point out, verses 29 to 31 describe things that are universal and cosmic because the epistles tell us as much. Mm-hmm. So... And then, of course, the fig tree, followed by no one knows the day or the hour. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. Well, the problem that preterists have always faced is, if Jesus is saying 8070 is the, the parousia, not a parousia, then he's predicted it. And we do know the day and the hour. We, we saw the temple destroyed. That's the second coming. We know. And it makes no sense. The New Testament doesn't really... Sweat the issue over the uh, of the te- probably because it's written before. But do you know everything in church history where they reflect on this and passages? Do they? Preterists uh, are very good at finding every church theologian that saw judgment on the temple and Israel as the second coming. So who, who was that? Preterists are, are very good oh. at doing that. Okay. So there are a number of places where that's hinted at by the church fathers. But I, I guarantee you, in most of those quotes upon Closer examination, it's not the parousia, it's a parousia. I'll concede a parousia, I will not concede the parousia. That Christ may have come in judgment, but this is not the second advent. And we, we 780 is huge. Now, I, I kind of laugh at your question because several dispensational writers have criticized my position for saying that I'm a, I'm a preterist because of the way I interpret Matthew chapter 24. The partial preterists are calling me futurists, so if they're both mad, that's probably a good sign. Any other questions? That was a very good question. Thank you. Well, let's close it. All right. We will uh, end right there. Again, fascinating, interesting stuff. And I like the sober-minded, tough-minded approach that he takes to this topic. And uh, personally, I think he's spot on. All right. Need to remind you, while Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, that means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions financially in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can uh, partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, uh, there's two buttons. One says uh, Join Our Crew. The other says Donate. The Join Our Crew button takes you to some screens where you fill it all out so that every month you automatically contribute $6.95 to Fighting for the Faith. Uh, to support us financially, and that's important because once we get to a thousand listeners, we're a little over sixty percent of the way there. Once we get to a thousand listeners who've joined our crew, well, then we'll be able to pay our bills. 
every month. Well, well, we're kind of struggling as it is, but you know, hey, that's okay. We're we're paying them kind of sort of, and uh, so uh, you know, our goal right now is to uh, get to the point where on a monthly basis we're solvent and uh, be able to pay all of our bills. And uh, you can, if you haven't joined our crew, this is a good time to do so. And pay attention because at the very end you you will get a link that'll take you to our that'll give you information on how to access our pirate cove, which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you go deeper in God's Word, Christ-centered theology, Christ-centered apologetics, good stuff for you there. And of course, if you'd like to uh, you know fill in the amount as to how much you'd like to contribute to fighting for the faith, you can do so by clicking on the donate button and filling out the secure information there, or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith. And send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. We'll have a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith tomorrow. And uh, I apologize for uh, you know, the, uh, the thing I had to take care of today. But I think, we'll, we'll, you know, life happens. So anyway, if you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.